All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This episode is brought to you by ResumeWriting.com. For more than 15 years, the network of independently certified professional resume writers at ResumeWriting.com have helped hundreds of thousands of people land better jobs. Before starting your job search, go have them get you ready at www.ResumeWriting.com. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 5, Supplemental Episode 1. Craig Bromberg has had a long and fascinating career at the intersection of media and technology. An early adopter of online technologies, Craig was a freelance writer when he was chosen by Pathfinder head Walter Isaacson to become the first editorial director of the Pathfinder Project. Craig tells us about the thinking that went into the launch of the website and the strategic goals that Pathfinder was intended to achieve. But he was also a participant in the Byzantine corporate politics that so hobbled Pathfinder's trajectory. And so he gives us a fascinating firsthand account of what it was like to fight for a specific vision inside a big organization like Time Warner. Craig has worked with media from every angle, and so the second half of the interview sees us get into a fascinating discussion about where media is and how it can succeed in the digital age. I didn't know this ahead of time, but Craig is a neighbor of mine in Brooklyn, so for the first time on this project, I was able to do a face-to-face interview. Craig was kind enough to come sit in my living room and have our discussion. So, word of warning, you do hear my daughter in the background towards the end of the interview. For that, I apologize, but only a little bit. She was quiet and happy for the better part of an hour, and that's quite a win for a three-month-old, I think. Anyway, here's the interview with Craig Bromberg. Craig Bromberg, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's um, let's start back in the I guess late '80s, early '90s. You're working as a, uh, a freelance journalist, is that right? Um, I was working as a freelance writer for Vanity, mostly for Vanity Fair and New York Magazine, and um, 
and then decided that I uh, really wanted to join the editorial business and get out of the freelance thing. I worked for a lot of magazines and newspapers and had reached my ceiling as I, from my perspective and had written a book and was ready for a managerial challenge. And so um, I took a job with a controlled circulation magazine that lasted about a year and wound up uh, at a party one night with um, a, my very glamorous then fiance, um, who did not become my wife, mm-hmm. um, and got into a conversation with Walter Isaacson. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you there for just a second <laughs> before we jump into that story. <laughs> Let's talk also about um, you were on Echo. Can you tell us about oh. Echo and what Echo was? So Echo is uh, really interesting. It was one of the first conference network bulletin board systems. Um, it wasn't a traditional bulletin board. It had um, a piece of software, Unix-based software, that basically allowed people to see different topics in conferences. So those conferences, I think on the Well, which was the West Coast variation, Whole Earth Electronic Link, the Well, um, Echo East Coast Hangout, um, these conferences could be about any number of topics. And so um, I was turned on to Echo by a very close friend of mine, um, and I was user number 11, he was number 8, and we watched this community grow from 10 people mm-hmm. to 25 people to 50 people to 150 people to 300 to 500 and then you know beyond our wildest imaginations 1200 people at the beginning it was probably one of the most exciting things i've ever experienced in my life this literal feeling of digital community in a live context where you're sitting in front of your machine and there are threaded conversations and conferences with a host and taking place at every hour of the day with live interactions between people. And this is this is modem-based dial-in? This is modem-based dial-in. There mm-hmm. were no slip connections. Right. And in fact, these were, I can't even remember what the speed was, before, 100, before 56K. I was going to say like 300 or something, 1,200. I think 300. I think I went, my first modem was a 300 baud modem mm-hmm. with a K-Pro 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then then I, I got a, a PC, which had a 1,200. Right. Then I got a 56K. Right, right, right. Um, I think 56 was maybe the last one before, before. we started going to, to cable or DSL. Right. Um, but, I, I, you know, it was incredibly exciting. I met many, many, many amazing people there. Was it, was it mostly um, media industry-based people on no, there? No, it was, it was all sorts of people. It was fascinating. The Echo, and it was, it's been started by a woman named Stacy Horn here in New York. But the West Coast thing, the, the well... Um, was started by Stuart Brand, you know, who was the founder of the whole Earth catalog. Right. And, and, you know, the flavor of it and the, the wannabe characteristics of the East Coasters who wanted to be like the West Coasters. So it had a sort of countercultural 60s sort of Absolutely. Yeah. It was totally, you know, like, for example, the travel conference, which was hosted by my friend um, Jeremy Wolf, was called Elsewhere. 
Mm. Um, I can't remember which conference I hosted. I think I think it might have been media. I don't remember. Um, but you know, there was a media conference, and there was a travel, and there were parenting, and all sorts of conferences. And you'd have to apply. You'd have to send a note to the to the conference moderator to be admitted to that conference. And then there would be a topic, and you'd respond to that topic in a threaded conversation mode. And it could be exhilarating because it could be very fast. Um, and then eventually there were private messages that were added. So it wasn't all in public and there were private messaging and public messaging. And, but it was like living with 50 people. It was amazing. So by virtue of, of you being a, an early adopter to this, this online community, when, uh, you're on this boat with Walter Isaacson, right. apparently you're, um, espousing the, the wonders of, of online life and he hears you? Is that what happened? That's exactly how it was. I, I was talking about Echo and, um, and Walter was, um, said it, in this kind of, you know, um, very laconic um, uh, Louisiana voice that he has. He always talks about his great aunt and Bugalusa. Um, says, so y'all know anything about that worldwide something or other? And I didn't know that it was classic Southern rope-a-dope. Um, and I rose to the occasion. I was like, are you kidding me? My friend Dan Levy called me and took me out just a few weeks ago. He showed up in my house with a slip connection. Actually, it been probably about six months earlier. And so I'd been on the first Netscape browser with a slip connection right from the very beginning and had been playing with it. And so Walter said to me, well, if you know something about it, let's talk. And so he had me write a memo um, this is late 93? This is probably September of 92. Okay. Before 93, I think. And he had me write this memo to him, um, which I still have somewhere. It's called The Next Generation of Time, Inc., um, which you know is basically my attempt to say um, you have to think about journalism as data. And you have to think about the internet and not just about closed gardens of communication. Um you know, um, and Walter, to my surprise, because I, I knew who he was and um, I'd read the Kissinger bio um, and I was in awe of him as somebody who was able to both write and have an editorial career, um, which at that time was what I aspired to as well. And, um, and he was, uh, you know, he called me up and we ended up having these conversations almost every week. Um, and I wasn't the only person. He'd mentioned other people to me on the phone who he was talking with. Um, but he was clearly educating himself and picking people's brains and, and you know, would literally pick up the phone and call me sometimes and sit with a question. And, and just for the, the, the listener's benefit, so Walter Isaacson at this point is, is high up at, at Time, the Time division of Time Warner. He was the assistant managing editor at that time. Mm -hmm. He was in the back of the book as opposed to running the entire... He wasn't the managing editor. Managing mm -hmm. editor is the highest title you can have in a timing context. So he was the assistant managing editor of Time. He was running the back of the book, which is where the letters and soft cultural stuff was. And then um, something interesting happened. Um, and that was that... Um, uh, so Jerry Levin, who was the chairman and CEO of Time of Time Inc., or maybe of all of Time Warner, excuse me, I think Time Warner, Don Logan was the uh, was the CEO of Time Inc., um, uh, 
Jerry Levin had this pet project that he was pursuing called the Full Service Network, which was down in Orlando, Florida. And um, it was being run through a combination of silicon graphics uh, technology. Um, and I guess Jim Clark plays into the story here a little bit. Um, and the guy who was running it came out of HBO named Jeff Holmes. And it was a very splashily uh, advertised venture and was extremely complex because it had very um, meticulous front-end graphics that were designed by Iconic, um, which was an agency out west, with um, a, what was described as a digital, a digital server, but was rea in reality, we heard later, was just a bunch of guys in a room Pulling Pull tapes, pulling levers, yeah, yeah moving tapes, <laughs> yeah, um, and um, uh, it, it. They tried to test it in in Orlando on I don't know how many, how many houses, how many homes, but they did five thousand, yeah. They did do a test, and um, you know they had some feedback from it, which I guess some of it was positive, but some of it which was not positive, and um, I guess to nobody's astonishment, Holmes was out. And Isaacson was asked to take his place, not running the full service network, but running this thing, which was going to be called um, Time Inc. New Media. New Media, I think. Maybe. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. right. Time Inc. New Media. And it was not internet based. It was just an exploratory thing. And there was anything digital. Anything. We didn't even think of it as digital. We mm -hmm. called it online. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and. Um, and so Walter convened this group of people, which was Oliver Knowlton, who mm -hmm. was then um, doing ops, uh, editorial operations for Time Magazine. Um, Bruce Judson, who was a kind of um, smart, young troubleshooter with a double JDMBA. Um, Kurt, Kurt Vibrantz, who mm -hmm. was the president of HBO. Um, Michael Wolf was in Michael there. Michael Wolf mm -hmm. was in there for a little bit. And then one day Walter said, called me up and said, we've gotten rid of Wolf. He was a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> come, come, uh, come and talk to me about working up here. And so they hired me with some amorphous title. I think it was some like, coordinator of Time Inc. New Media. Editorial coordinator. Editorial, right. That's yeah. what it was. And, um, and so I was hired in this sort of lowly position and mostly just left to sort of figure it out. How do we do something? Is that, so that's kind of a question that I have. There's not really, there's not really a, a mission statement for this group other than let's just go in another direction. FSN might be winding down, but we still think this is the future. So what, what's out there? Right. And so, you know, there were a couple of options, right? We knew that there was stuff going on in AOL. But I was, um, as I said, already on the Internet. I was already using the Mosaic browser. I was extremely excited by the idea that somehow or other, we were going to take timing content and move it into this realm, into this realm of the internet. We didn't even know what that really meant, to mm -hmm. be honest. We had no concept of what servers were. We didn't understand what HTML was. Um, we didn't know how to, how to deal with Unix or how to deal with Perl. We had no concept of any of these things, and it was basically left to me to figure it out because um, nobody else knew. Um, and even though my technical knowledge was relatively limited, um, 
I went out there and started searching for people. Um, and so I found a guy named Mark Jason Dominus, who was at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and he was already then um, a, one of the top experts on Pearl. And um, he set up a server for us with a guy named Shad Todd. And the three of us basically started programming this environment. Um, and we did a very early homepage, um, which... And you're, you're, doing, you're doing it for the web at this point, or, or you're just doing it maybe with the idea of doing a, a dial-up service? or We were doing it strictly for the web. And okay. meanwhile, at the same time, there were these high-level strategic discussions that were taking place. So Walter, you know, would communicate with Logan and I guess with Jerry Levin. Um, and one of the things that came down the pipe was discuss MCI. There was mm -hmm. an opportunity to work very closely with MCI. I, I, I think, I can't remember, but I believe that Walter might have had a family connection to MCI. So that was a, a, a long discussion. I remember sitting at some very, very long boardroom tables um, with top MCI brass and feeling like you know this was interesting. There was the same discussions with AT&T, I remember as well. Um, but mostly we were just out to sort of figure out how to program uh, material from Time Inc. magazines into this, um, this very tiny little website. Mm -hmm. It was... There were a lot of different strategic perspectives that one could take. And, and it was, it was, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of fighting um, in a small room. Um, and the fighting became quickly, uh, quickly more intense when um, I think in my third or fourth week, or maybe a couple months into doing this, um, Dick Duncan, who was the, another assistant managing editor or executive editor of Time magazine uh, who was running the Time on AOL mm -hmm. um, venture um, heard about me and was aghast. Um, and I'll never forget being led into Dick Duncan's office by, um, by Isaacson. He said, well, I'm going to have to take you in there. You're going to have to meet these guys. And walking in, and Isaac saying, "This is the guy," and Duncan sitting behind his desk, very his whole room just stinking of cigars, because um, in those days you could smoke in the office, um, and looking at his face getting redder and redder, and because he had had a guy who was working for him and running the time on AOL, um, uh, whatever you want to call it, portal. Mm -hmm. um, and that guy was named Jim Kinsella. And Kinsella was, um, you know, probably about the same age as I am, but he'd already had an entrepreneurial experience. Um, and he was just a supremely confident um, uh, manager. Really terrific, sharp-minded um, guy. And, um, and he had been told that if there was ever an opportunity, Time Magazine would be the one to rule the roost. Um, and so this, this battle very quickly erupted between Time Magazine as the crown jewel of Time's assets and, um, 
and what a Time Inc. venture would be. And so we were, we had um, uh, this many months long standoff where um, our competing visions of the future uh, were debated. Well, and the web wins out. I, I get the impression the web wins out because even though the partnership with AOL was first, and that was hugely important for AOL at the time to get time, you know, on, on their site and things like that. But isn't isn't it that Time Warner is a little suspicious of AOL's motive, maybe? Or I, Actually, I think the web won out really quickly. Um, I don't think that was the issue. In fact, the meetings with AT&T and MCI were really about whether we should do a proprietary network mm-hmm. um, and to potentially compete against AOL. The question I'm getting at, though, the, the strategic idea is if you go to the web then there's no middleman. You're doing it directly to the consumer. Like that maybe is an attractive strategic consideration. Because I, because creating something with AT&T is, again, all right, we're cutting AOL out of the system. We'll just do our own. Right. I, but I don't think that the, the issues around AT&T and MCI and those kinds of telecom com- collaborations, excuse me, were so much about the lost revenue to AOL because the audience was already clearly important. That's why the revenue was a good stand. Um, it wasn't just a loss leader. The, the real debate was really about what capabilities you could, you could develop and what relationship to customers you could have and who those customers were is there thinking maybe that if we do a a, our own dial-up service then we can do the subscription model right away there was a lot of talk about subscription but um but again the question was where do you see the strategic focus in five years and ten years so it quickly became apparent that creating another walled garden was not going to lead to the kind of audience development or scale that um, would be significant enough to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was more based on intuition. It was not like, I mean, we didn't have at that point McKinsey guys running around yet. Um, we had some rudimentary research. We were working with Iconic we had business plans, we had meetings, um, but there was no real, at least not at the operational level, any real strategic nuos that was being circulated. Um, there was a guess. And the guess was that this internet thing, this web thing, because that's what it kept being called, mm-hmm. um, was gonna gather speed and momentum. And the question really was, um, what what entity should it be? And so there were really two competing perspectives. You know, my perspective was that um, Time Inc. had amazing assets and resources and that customers, and by customers I meant end users, mm-hmm. um, had the desire to understand and search um, 
subjects and that the data, the articles, were the gold. That we weren't going to build more credibility for the individual brands um, unless we went and committed vast resources to building entities for mm-hmm. each brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my cheap, uh, low-key perspective was that we could create a brand of Time Inc. And so that was one perspective, that mm-hmm. there would be this almost like a a curated version of Time Inc. Mm-hmm. And so, and that that goes under the, the Pathfinder banner. No, actually, that was uh, being touted as Calliope. Okay. Um, that was my code name for it. And we went very far down the path of debating this... Um, what I called um, centripetal perspective uh, versus a centrifugal perspective, right? Where everything was being spun into a center. And then, so then you'd spin it back out, essentially, to the, to the titles. Um, so there were these two perspectives. Kinsella's perspective was that, no, we needed to create a very minimal entity at the center of all this mm-hmm. and basically become a service organization to help titles build brand. Um, and so that was uh, the two perspectives. And Isaacson um, heard us and one day sat us down in his office and said, so you both have interesting ideas. I'm, I'm, I don't know who's the better one. I'm going to give you both some time and money and go out and build your model. Now, Jim Kinsella is one of the smartest people I've met my entire career. I mean, he's now the chairman of Interroot. It's one of the largest cable companies in in Europe. Um, He's absolutely brilliant. And he knew the ropes. Um, And he knew how to generate. He'd been an entrepreneur. He had a business as as an an ergonomics business while he was in college at Swarthmore. And he'd managed to recognize that he really wanted to be in the design of media instead of the design of objects, industrial design. And so he'd wound up at Time Inc. And he was damned if he was going to let somebody else get in front of him. Um, and he commandeered resources that you know made my head spin. He had Janet Wagle, who was Time's designer. He had writers and editors he was working with. And he had all those people at his disposal. Me, I had only the organization that I had created which was very, very few people. I mean, maybe three or four people. And I hired Lucy Sisman, who Oliver Knowlton had suggested that I hire because they're related. It's Oliver's ex-sister-in-law, I think. So um, Oliver suggested Lucy, who's one of the greatest graphic designers, magazine designers ever. And so Lucy and I worked together on something, and and Janet worked with, with Jim, and, you know, our competing visions of the world came to a head and, and Walter basically made uh, Jim the managing editor of this thing. And me, I had a kind of undefined role. Jim didn't really, couldn't figure out what that was. He basically said I was the deputy editor. Mm-hmm. But there were no formal titles really at that point because there weren't very many people. We were, and Jim had to, wasn't, wasn't going to be able to push me out the door right away. Right, so you lose the bake off, but you don't necessarily walk away. Well, Jim was Jim. I think had basically been told, "Give him a year." 
And so that's probably pretty much what it was. I think it was probably a little mm-hmm. more than a year. And it, it just, you know, um, I, I, that was a tough time for me. I mean, I, I learned, I mean, Jim was trying to put his stamp on, on this evolving entity, which, you know, was Pathfinder mm-hmm. and got to be called Pathfinder. And it was, um, it was just um, a truly amazing and bumpy ride as we tried to figure out, you know, what, what resources could we command um, as these curated entities and which could we service or send out, farm out as service entities to those titles who we're most interested in? And then what could we do to explore the nether world of, because this was Jerry Levin's project and not just a Time Inc. project, what could we do in the Warner Brothers world? Mm-hmm. So it it kind of came to me. Basically, Jim said, "Look, I'm only interested in time and people and the crown jewels. Mm-hmm. Y- you can you can go and you can deal with. Actually, he gave me people. I think he was more interested in SI. You can deal with anything that has to do with culture, people, entertainment, weekly, Warner Brothers. Corral as many as you can. Bring them to bring them to bring them to the thing, and then." create entities you know you have to pass it by me you have to have a budget you gotta do all this stuff but figure out what to do so um i don't remember the first one i mean i remember one of them was called digital pulse i hired steve baldwin who was a car writer um to work on that um along with chris peacock um and those guys ran down that way another one of our editors was a guy named steve mitra um and he started doing stuff on the homepage. Um, Jim hired a guy named Michael Perhez who came actually out of creating um, uh, signage, highway signage. <laughs> and now he's designing on the pixel level. Um, and there was a sort of small art department. And, you know, for the, at that point, for almost eight months or 10 months, I'd been running the whatever you want to call it, Pathfinder homepage, mm-hmm. basically. Um, figuring out headlines, the relationship to stories, and this thing. But this entity of the homepage became hotly debated because, um, you know, what was it? What was its intent? Was it its intent to drive you to these other sources or was it its intent to pull you in, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that, that debate was never... It, was it ever really settled? Never got settled. Yeah. It was a constant battle. I think it, it got settled when Jim finally pushed me out and then shortly after was pushed out himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was a mess the last five months of before Linda McCutcheon and Dan Okren took over. Um, it was just a messy time. Um, but uh, the debate was healthy, I think, actually, because the reality is that well, at least I learned a tremendous amount from it. And what I learned was that, you know, the internet is, you know, people say about Pathfinder that, and I think you said in, in your in your broadcast earlier, um, that Time Inc. didn't get that the internet was sui generis. And they kept thinking of it as a medium um, that they could push their stuff through. And um, I think that there's some truth to that. Um but I also think that some of us did recognize that 
there was an opportunity not to just um, recirculate and aggregate, but actually to to curate the news in a different way and create a freestanding entity. So for me, that was always what Calliope slash Pathfinder was always supposed to be. I just saw it as a kind of native internet product that would never be, you know, um, I wasn't concerned, frankly, at that point with revenue. Mm -hmm. We weren't looking for advertising money. We weren't thinking that this was a great way to, to build audience. What I wanted to do was create a beachhead for Time Inc. or Time Warner on the internet that people could explore our products but by actually tasting them first. Mm -hmm. And th those little tastes would take them into deeper territory. And the magazines we'd give service capabilities to, and, and they would have their own sites. But there would be this place that, very much like Salon or Slate, that had some of its own entities, but also aggregated and curated resources from around timing. So... Uh yeah, I'd like to ask you about like some of of the components and and if some of these things were launched after you were after you left, what uh, you can let me know. But because this is basically this site doesn't exist anymore. Like you can't find. So what did it launch with? It, it launches with it's the homepage and it's pointing to uh, various properties for Sports Illustrated for this and that and the other thing. Was there was there a a login system? Did you become a member? Did you register? There was no there was no registration. There was no onboarding. None of the concepts of paywall um, that we have presently um, existed. But wasn't there a push to do some sort of a subscription? Because I've read that there was a deadline. We're gonna we're gonna start charging at this date, and then they let it slide because they wanted more numbers. Not during my tenure. Okay. That may have come during Linda's tenure, tenure okay. and, and Linda and Dan. But in the early days, we were not concerned about revenue. We were concerned about entity. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the things that's you know kind of interesting is that Don Logan's famous thing, that Pathfinder was the black, black hole. sucking hole of Time, Inc. Um, it really comes around the McCutcheon-Okran era. Okay. It's not around... The era that we not around the ninety four. It's more ninety five, ninety six. I really think, if I remember yeah. correctly, that's when it when it happens. And you know, I I think that that people don't really understand the 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 fluidity of the debate that was going on inside that Isaacson really had had fomented, mm -hmm. which was you know, what is this entity? Mm -hmm. You know, there was a philosophical debate going on about, and maybe too philosophical mm -hmm. about what what this thing should be um was there what about things like bulletin boards chat email anything like that so you know again how much resources should be in, uh, allocated to the federal entity and how much to the states mm -hmm. um i think the same argument uh is is was is very similar um the federal entity um could only do certain things that the states would never be able to do. The, you know, the states can't do a um, a, a bulletin board, mm -hmm. and then it becomes. By the way, so know, wait, so the states can't do it. Only the the government can do the bulletin correct. board. So an individual Sports Illustrated wasn't allowed to have bulletin board. It wasn't what is a question? It wasn't allowed. Mm -hmm. It was a question of didn't have the resource. Right. Okay. And so who could do it? So we came up with Wabbit, which was mm -hmm. Walter's alternate bulletin board internet 
threads. That was my title for it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Rabbit was a great, very much like Echo, because that was where I came from. And mm -hmm. I believed mm -hmm. in the power of threaded conversations. Um, and AOL certainly had its own threaded conversation boards, but it was a very different kind of bulletin board system. And it was also not internet based. It was AOL's Rain Man, or right, Rain Maker, right. was the software that Rain they used. something, yeah. I think it was Rain, Rain, Rain Maker. I can't remember. And you know, from my perspective, there were data assets that had to be unlocked, and the data assets lied all over Time Inc. So you know, one of the things that, and I'll, excuse me, all over Time Warner. So, you know, one of the projects that I was pursuing, especially in the last eight months of my tenure, were, well, wait a minute. There's book reviews at People, mm -hmm. Time, Entertainment Weekly, even Sports Illustrated had book reviews. We've got an e-commerce capability in Book of the Month Club. Mm -hmm. Let's tie it all together. Mm -hmm. Let's use those assets to, again, create a curated entity, but here with an e-commerce capability. Oh, and there's this guy in Seattle. Have you heard about right, him? He's right. an ex-banker named Jim Bezos. What, What's his name? And we're all like, you know, clamoring over what the potential there could be. And that's a whole other story. I don't want to take over this segment with that. But essentially then I bring um, uh, the four horsemen of the aged apocalypse um, Sam Cohn, Woody Allen's agent, Jason Epstein, um, the literary dynamo. I um, uh, can't remember this two other guys' name. Um, one guy who had basically been the producer of the Ed Sullivan Show, <laughs> who wanted to start, who had actually started with the idea of creating a, a cable channel about um, uh, about ecology and green things mm -hmm. and couldn't get the financing and then stumbled on the idea of doing a book channel mm -hmm. and uh, and my uh, then girlfriend was a novelist and uh, was writing um, at at NYU or teaching at NYU and uh, so that put me in touch with Ed Doctora Neil Doctora and he had somehow become part of the investor group around this thing when they decided to do a book channel mm -hmm. and they called it Book TV Hmm. Um, and so um, one by one I had these guys come to my little office on the 40th floor at mm -hmm. Time Inc and see the World Wide Web mm -hmm. um, and it was Epstein's first exposure to it Sam Cohn's first exposure to it mm -hmm. you know, they were they came up and they saw and they were believers mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, and so they and I started having these conversations about how we could actually work together on this thing um, and as I left Time Inc., I actually continued focusing on building a business plan. It was the first business plan I ever wrote. Mm -hmm. And I worked with Iconic on it um, to create what was going to be called BookNet because they weren't finding more, they weren't finding cable carriage mm -hmm. from Time Warner Cable. And so it, was, it would be a website that would be book community. It would have been book community. I wanted to do book e commerce uh -huh, um, right. and, um, and, uh, book editorial um and uh i mean the ironic thing is that disney then picks me up right after working at time and hires me to start a 
a book magazine called first called Book City, then called Books First, um, that would have been a national mainstream magazine about books and authors using Doubleday Direct, which at that time was much bigger than Book of the Month Club, um, as an e-commerce and direct mail partner. Um, and so that relationship then uh, grew and grew and grew. And bizarrely, um, then timing comes back into the story because when CNN and Sports Illustrated tied up, mm-hmm. Um, as a result of the Turner marriage mm-hmm. uh, with Time Warner, um, suddenly Disney gets cold feet on all of the properties except that fledgling ESPN. Mm. Um, and then all resources go to ESPN, and I'm hmm. left without a without a, a horse in the game. Hmm. Um, but um, to come back to Time hmm. Warner, you know, that was among the most ambitious plans that we had. You know, um, I tried to do things on a much smaller basis in terms of sort of at a curated editorial entity. So, for example, we did um, the Digital Pulse thing. We did OJ Central, which was the um, the, the OJ case. And um, that ended up probably right around the time when I left Time Inc. Because I know because I had actually prepared the not guilty and guilty pages. Okay, wait, so you, you're the one responsible for that? No, I was not. Okay. I, I had left and, and Jim pushed the... Um, the guilty page out, not me, and okay. uh, maybe maybe it wasn't Jim himself. Maybe right, it right. was um, it, maybe it was it was one of the art directors, um, but it wasn't. I had already gone. I was out of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, literally out of the building. I was no longer a timing employee, um, and so. But I was the one who came up with the idea of, of a calendar where every day you could click on a hotspot to see what had happened in the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, again. How could you bring Time Inc. resources to these magazine-like properties that weren't owned by the titles, mm-hmm. but would bring readers to the titles because there was an interesting perspective about the news? So I'm curious, what sort of uptick did you see? Like, how how did community did did community gain traction? We we know OJ Central had some traction but like in general like w- w- did these bulletin boards take off and start to foster they communities they were bulletin boards first of all okay message boards what the no they weren't community? message okay. boards they were they were they were editorial entities they mm-hmm. were curated ed- editorial mm-hmm. entities digital pulse was had um, mitra and chris peacock behind it and and, and steve baldwin um, and they were generating copy um, and but they were they were really curators, mm-hmm. um, and their job was was very curatorial in nature. Um, but they were curating from Time Inc. And the problem is, is that you know the resources that were inside those different entities were extremely limited, so they didn't have their current issues in a digital format that was usable. They mm-hmm. were locked up inside publishing systems that were. Um, they were digital publishing systems, but you couldn't. You'd have to actually like copy and paste the text. So that's a that's an interesting question I want to ask. So is it mostly for the for the stuff you're doing online? Is it completely new editorial stuff? It's not just taking last week's issue and throwing those articles up. Is it a mix of that? Or? It's a it's a it's a blend. I mean, Pathfinder was a blend of that stuff, mm-hmm. and. Again, the tussle or the argument or the debate, depending upon what what moment you're talking about, 
between our different perspectives at that time is very much about how much of this stuff is we're taking from Time Magazine, from People Magazine, from EW, and actually copying and pasting into our publishing system, mm-hmm. into the HTML publishing system. And it was literally copying and pasting. We, mm-hmm. were, we would get files that were sent by email that we would copy and paste, or they would give us a disk, mm-hmm. and we would take the disk and copy and paste. There's no uh, content management system no, at this point. No, it didn't yeah. exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't there. Right. And we taught ourselves HTML. CSS didn't even exist. Right. There were no there were no style sheets. Right. We were among the people who were at the cusp of inventing style sheets. In fact, it was when people like Andrew Anker from Wired came to us and said, "Hey, do you know about style sheets?" Mm-hmm. That we were hip to the idea that there were technologies that could actually simplify the process. So much of our effort was about understanding the very, very, very rudimentary aspects of what was a link, how a link could be found how you could alert people. We wanted to have relationships with Yahoo because Yahoo was, in our opinion, the gold standard. And they were coming and taking meetings at this point, right? They were. I mean, they were. But um, again, most of our attention was focused not on the Yahoos of the world because Yahoo was very insular and California-based. They were out there, I think, in Sunnyvale right from Mm -hmm. the very beginning. And, you know, we needed them to show that we existed right that was the findability from a browsing perspective mm-hmm. that we could be found right it wasn't the google manifesto of all the world's information mm-hmm. google was you know i we might have even been shown google mm-hmm. it wouldn't have registered for us because mm-hmm. it was a far-fetched concept mm-hmm. um, um Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You had said something earlier about how, you know, you at the beginning it's not about revenue. Like you personally and other people are okay with with losing money and things like that. We weren't it, okay with losing money. But we just weren't, we weren't focused, we were focused on, ter- gr- on, gr- on understanding what the medium was first. And then finding And problems. then finding revenue. It, it occurs to me that, you know, maybe one of the problems here is that it, it, inside Time Warner, you weren't allowed this sort of entrepreneurial space, you know, because 
you know, Yahoo is able, Yahoo is almost happening at the exact same time that Pathfinder is happening, like literally the exact same time. But they have the luxury of taking $100 million from SoftBank. So whatever, you know, the, the pressure on them to go green is not immediate. And then they have an IPO. You guys don't have that luxury because you're, you're a section of a division. There's P&L for that division, and all you guys are, can show is red. That's absolutely true. But there's another thing that I think is more critical, which is that we're a media company. We're not a digital resource. People out west had no interest in media. The Valley was not interested in what we were doing. There were technology-based reporting entities like Wired. And they saw themselves as partnering to technology and, and to innovation, not to media. Mm-hmm. Timing, specifically, not Time Warner so much, but timing specifically, has had, from the very start of its history, um, an essential confusion and, fo- and debate about who it was really serving. Brit Hatton wanted Time magazine and Life magazine, which was a considerably later invention, to be very focused on a kind of literary vision of America. Luce didn't want him to screw it up, especially for advertisers. And it was Luce who moved them to Ohio, and it was Luce who found the national advertisers that were able to float the company. He didn't want Britt Hatton messing up, who's buried, by the way, right here in Greenwood Cemetery, hmm. um, messing things up. There's a great book called The Man Who Time Forgot, which is, is kind of amazing reading to understand the history of the company. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, um, this notion of church and state grew up to protect not journalism, but advertisers. Mm-hmm. I think is one of the most important things to remember is that church and state was so that those idiots who were doing editorial wouldn't mm-hmm. screw things up mm-hmm. with it's plausible deniability don't worry about that controversial article we have nothing to do with it we still have our relationship that's where the money is mm-hmm. so this notion of a Chinese wall of the separation of church and state is is baked into the DNA of a media company, especially into the DNA of timing. Um, and you can't change that DNA. Even today, the company is struggling with it. And are you suggesting that almost to succeed online, there needs to be a la BuzzFeed, all of these new media companies that are willing to completely blur that church and state line. So what I think is that um, media companies um, have to ask themselves how to create service to readers, um, to users. And service um, is a very uh, difficult thing to get a grip on. Um, because when we think about information and information goods, um, 
the it's it's very difficult to ascertain their value except in professional contexts right if you're a dentist and i sell you a dental publication because you want to learn the latest techniques for filling a tooth it has a very specific value to you but if you're a consumer and you're reading an article about popsicles as it's summertime um, and you've got access to a commodified core of, of data sets that basically says there are 50 articles about popsicles in summertime um, the value of that information is the value of a commodity, and it's only run and uh, it only economic value comes from the advertising that can be sold against it, which in the case of popsicles in summertime is very very low, especially in a programmatic environment. So you're left with a media business that basically is commoditized at its core, um, except in those upper reaches where you have premium content that mm -hmm. has meaning for a specific audience. So if we're ever to actually figure out the future of media and the future of why this history is important, the history of the internet, um, is really because we actually are understanding how to disentangle the DNA that Time Inc. Um, constructed from the very beginning so that we can understand what the utility is not to advertisers, mm -hmm. but to humans. Mm -hmm. um, and when we start to do that really hard work, we start to come in touch with the actual touch points of where different types of content are most important to people in their lives. And then we can see what time of day it's important to them and what relevance it has to them based on what they're doing and mm -hmm. all of that. Um, and there are pieces of this that are touched in what's becoming known as content marketing, but most content marketing, not thinking about consumer use cases it's thinking about publishers need to create reach mm -hmm. which puts you right back in the advertising game mm -hmm. um, and so you know this shows you how hard it is to actually think consumer first user first because right now you've got these entangled customer segments mm -hmm. who are we working for mm -hmm. the advertiser mm -hmm. or the reader because it's not true that their their purposes are aligned. Mm -hmm. So this is where the, the 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 same issues I think are pervasive in all media companies from Pathfinder to the present. At AOL, the same stuff is still debated. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Tim Armstrong is working extra special hard to create premium premium inventory mm -hmm. that's not going to be affected by the programmatic sales of the vast amounts of crap that he knows he needs to have the pipes lubed up because mm -hmm. he's got millions of people looking at the site. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that's, so they've got a stream of revenue from programmatic sales, but the, they have a stream of, of sales from Project Devil. And the sales from Project Devil command a much higher CPM. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he wants more of his business to be in that area. Right. But it's very hard because that's content creation and content generation. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be of a much higher quality level mm -hmm. than the same curated stuff that is the flotsam and jetsam of every Tom, Dick and Harry media outlet. Right. So this is this is the issue is, you know, how you make money, how you actually come to an idea of what premium content is, what good content is and who it's for and why. And those are the essential issues that are at the core of all this stuff. They haven't changed dramatically since 1994. Um, to, to wrap it up, uh, one of the points of, of this chapter in particular is to try to give a little bit of credit 
to Pathfinder for being pioneering, especially because it seems to have completely gone down the memory hole. Um, but like I said, I mean, you guys, Pathfinder is is doing stuff at the same time as Yahoo, a year before the Netscape IPO, you know, before the web really, really takes off. And yet, there's this weird paradox that we're talking about. Of all the media companies, why was it Time Warner that was doing this stuff at this time? Why were they the well, I don't ones... think that's that confusing. I mean, you know, it's... it's. I mean, look, Jerry Levin wanted to create the 500-lane superhighway. That was his vision. And he was far out ahead of all media leaders. I mean, if you've gone down the road to Hearst or Conde, they would have, like, laughed. That's ridiculous. Um, you know, Jerry Levin, who's, a, you know, had a very troubled tenure and has had a you know, some tough times in life. Um, you know, he was a taciturn guy who found himself in a boatload of trouble with this stuff. And, you know, I give him a lot of credit for actually recognizing that there was real opportunity to to create a, a, a digital entity out of Time Warner. So you would put a lot of credit that just on his vision for that, for... I, I, technology would be a thing that that because again it was on the map you know mm-hmm. look i mean dow jones was on the map also mm-hmm. you know there were people down jones who were had a tellerate for example who were doing some important stuff at the same time um but the new york times was nowhere mm-hmm. for example um and you know you couldn't have a meaningful conversation about this stuff because frankly you'd be laughed laughed out of the office if you said People are going to pay for stuff on the web. You can have paywalls. Advertisers would find branded content a significant way. These would be farcical suggestions in the mid-90s. But, or even the idea that content created online, articles out of curated material could be stronger and more interesting and better premium, better experiences than straight pieces of writing, people would think you were nuts, especially if you were Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. And so that that kind of gives you some insight into, you know, what the argument was inside Pathfinder. Could you really innovate and create something that was more premium and more value to people than what was in the magazine? And wouldn't mm-hmm. that threaten the magazine? Cannibalization. Right. That was the big the big red herring, you know. And and some of us thought these things could coexist. That the small entity that could have been my perspective, let's just, you mm-hmm. know, I think Jim and I have made our peace a long time ago. And I think we both agree that, you know, that small entity that was Pathfinder could do curated stuff that would have been of high value. And you could have serviced those other, the enti- the major, the significant entities that were part of Time Inc. And I, I just want to say, we give short shrift to the idea that servicing is an important activity. But if you think about it, that's a significant innovation capability that was being spread through a very hierarchically driven organization. And by, by servicing, you mean? Literally giving the tools of, you know, here's how you build a website. Here's what HTML is. Here's what you can get out of this. Let's figure it. Let's see. So Atlantic Records, what could we do to help you? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one of the things that I, I did at Pathfinder that I'm most proud of was I worked on the very first major Hollywood movie promotion. Batman Forever. Batman Forever. Yeah. It was huge. And, you know, it was a game. Don Buckley, who's EVP of um, Digital at Showtime, um, you know, and I did it together. 
and you know was cobbling together resources coming up with games showing clips from the movie web files mm-hmm. you know all in now we take that for granted today uh so much so that we call it you know uh electronic press kits right epks um it was basically what it was except it was consumer facing it wasn't just an epk it was a it was really you know a game you know that you could play with clips and I touch a touch something on the screen and I feel they call those things that we had maps mm-hmm. um, you know you touch a point on the map right would be of the image right the image, image maps was, that's what they were yep. mm-hmm. and you define the image areas right right but you know that was the kind I of I haven't thought about that in a long time. <laughs> but that was what we were doing yeah and and it was like it ain't journalism mm-hmm. uh, why is this in the same boat as Time Magazine, you're polluting the water. Mm. You're, you know, and then you want this thing, this monstrosity, to be competing on the homepage with mm-hmm. a piece of important news. Right. Like you're demeaning and cheapening the property. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the property? Mm-hmm. Is it a brand of Time Inc., Time Warner, an individual brand? And this is why Pathfinder was always biting its own tail because. It was threatening to the very core entities on a cultural and brand level. Mm-hmm. So I know, you, you know, one thing people talk about all the time is the revenues that you'd be getting out of AOL. Well, that's true. But the more frightening piece of this was, was how, what are you going to do to the brand? If this thing grows as much as you guys say it is, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers will just take us over. And then what will happen to Time Inc.? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that that was a, um, an incredibly fearful perspective. Um, and one of the things that we saw was tremendous pushback from Warner um, and from Time Inc. about, you know, Time Warner didn't really exist. So there were a lot of complicated, um, complicated things. And to be in the front line of that with all these big suits around who were drawing, you know, God knows, $350,000 paychecks. And, you know, there we were just minions, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know for me, it was a, a, a you know, a, a, a thrilling and frightening ride. Um, you know, um, to give you just some sense of contrast, when I went to Disney, um, six weeks after leaving time, um, Jake Weinbaum, who was running Disney Online, basically said, you know what, we're not going to have that problem. We're just going to give every title $100,000. And your job is to just figure out, you know, who they can partner with and they can do anything they want. Um, you know, you'll provide best services, you know, best best practices, knowledge, and, and your job is to consult and help them figure it out. But, you know, here's hundred k You're on mm-hmm. your own next year. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, you know, immediately says... The focus has to be on innovating as media properties, um, and you know you've got a sink or swim attitude. We're not going to push you out of business if your website's not going to work. You're just going to have to figure it out yourself, and you're on your own. So you better do a good job and try to make it a, an experience that draws advertising a little, but more important, draws subscription. Better model that. I think it was a better model. I think it was a, a significantly less expensive and more focused 
um, and allowed us to have greater title specificity. There were only six titles, granted, within Disney publishing, but um, you know there were there was an opportunity for Disney at that moment to kind of say, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna figure this out." Um, and Jake also had his his uh, his Waterloo with Family.com. Mm. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's another hour. If I could impose on you for one more thing before yeah, yeah. we go. Um, we could talk about Bertelsmann, Disney, Ziff, <laughs> Samsung, Citibank. Well, I don't know. Maybe you'll be coming back. <laughs> um, but apparently, uh, back in your journalism days, before all this again, um, you did, maybe in 93, a New York Times Magazine interview with um, Mark Andreessen. It was just, he, he, Andreessen was just a source in a larger piece about the founding of Electronic Frontier. Electronic Frontier. Fun, electronic Freedom. Frontier. Frontier, right? EFF. Right. right. Frontier Foundation? Frontier Foundation. It's been so long. Mm-hmm. I, know. I mm-hmm. know it's still in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, the Times hired me to... Jim Atlas, who was my editor at the Times. Um, James Atlas, who's an amazing journalist and publisher. Um, hired me to go out um, and do whatever I could to figure out what was going on with this Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, the idea was that civil liberties were being threatened and um and uh so i went out and um hung out with mitch kapoor who was the founder of lotus um and um and john perry barlow who um was a uh, an amazing dude who's a songwriter for the grateful dead one of the first uh users of the well a Republican rancher. Sort of from this era, there were these guys that were gurus of technology is going to transform our lives. Absolutely. This is the, the milieu that Wired came out of, kind of. And Tim Leary, you know, mm-hmm. who definitely Barlow was close with, you know, and they all had LSD as, as, a, um, as a touchstone in their lives. Um, and so Barlow and Kapoor um, had this idea that they were going to create the EFF, and I... And, and Mitch suggested that we hop on his Bombardier jet and go and look at the Hackers Conference, which I think went to the second Hackers Conference, in, I think it was in Tahoe. Mm-hmm. And we flew in there, and then Mitch said we should go to Comdex. And um, we went to Comdex. And then we flew up to um, uh, the valley, I may have had the, have the route mm-hmm, wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, at Comdex, I met Bill Gates. Um, and it was kind of amazing to see him in person and realize how small he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was sort of small, sandy, and squeaky voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then we flew up to the valley, and um, I'm not sure whether it was before or after the Hackers Conference, and um, went to see uh, Steve Jobs at Next. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Barlow really had it in for jobs because he thought he'd betrayed Apple. Um, and uh, um, there was a little bit of tension as jobs gave us a demo of the next machine, which was kind of amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some pointed questions were flying around. It was pretty, pretty tense. They, they're all in this article? Well, no. I mean, what was in the article was talking about what the FF is and what the issues were. 
Anyway, along there, somewhere in that same trip, I went and paid a visit to Andreessen, who uh-huh. was at Netscape, uh-huh. um, or Mosaic, I think it was called. So he's out in California at this time. Yeah, yeah. he was out in California. Okay. And um, he was, I mean, I didn't know what Asperger's was, but he was, uh, you know, speaking really fast like this, in like kind of bursts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I interviewed him about what he thought the future of the web was, and he kept coming back to this one point, which, you know, just kind of, I just didn't make any sense to me. And I came back and told Isaacson who I was having those conversations with because I was a writer at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, he kept talking about cable TV. All he wanted to talk about was cable TV. He didn't want to talk about the web. He just wanted to talk about how, how this thing, this browser was going to overtake cable television. And that's all he wanted to talk about. I kept, everything I said, he kept telling me back to cable TV and cable TV is never going to be able to do this. And, we're going to push out cable TV. And and I was like, what does this have to do with anything? I can't figure this guy out. I mean, why aren't we talking about the quality of the images or the integration of the text and images? Or like, you know, because those were things that I concerned about. I was concerned about because I was concerned about the design capabilities of the web. And HTML2 mm-hmm. was horrible to look mm-hmm. at, mm-hmm. right? And, and so, you know, that was, you know, and this guy's talking about TV and the business models of cable television hmm. and how this thing is going to overtake them one day. And I think that, you know, it it obviously that's what he was thinking about. And I think we look at it today and we understand that we're getting closer to that moment as IPTV becomes increasingly relevant and right. the relationship of IPTV to what takes place on different devices um, is growing more central. You know, my kids don't like to watch television with commercials. Right, right, right. <laughs> and they only watch IPTV. That's yeah. all they watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they don't, they just don't like commercials. They're not interested in them. They find it clutters the experience. They'd rather pay for a subscription for the content they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they are happy to consume it on different devices and different times. But, the living room is still the living room. And, you know, um, if you can control the living room, most of the other devices will will follow suit. And I think whether Mark got that piece of the interconnectedness of devices or not, and I, I suspect that that was not what was on his bandwidth. I think what he was really thinking about was how greater bandwidth was eventually just going to, you know, take the the signal that was taking place online and move it to the television as bandwidth increased. I think that's primarily what it, where his head mm-hmm. was at. Um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, the reality is, is uh, that he was actually talking about this, how many years is it back to 1993? You know, 30 years before anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he's been there on the front line of that and, and understands the business issues of, of these things probably better than anybody else. Well, only 20 years, although if, if, it, was 20 30, or 30? if, if it was 30, we'd all be a lot older than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Right, yeah. 20 years, right. Because what we're talking about, Pathfinder, that's exactly 20 years it's ago exactly right now. exactly 20 years ago, yeah. 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 Well, it, it, it feels like 30. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really does feel like a different era, um, a different time and place. Um, I know I'm different. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, Craig, I don't want to take up any more of your time, oh. and this has been a fantastic conversation. 
And so thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I hope uh, you'll edit this down. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, but trust me, people like it. Don't worry. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because... The weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com, get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. <laughs>